0: You know, party of whatever, what's your name? They're writing me down, put me on the list, and I'm like, Jones. And she I'm so excited. I'm like, it's Jones, right? Like for the first time, I don't have to say Palaha. And I say Jones, and she goes, Is that J-O-A-N-S? I'm like, are you kidding me? Is it it's me? It's not the name. It's me. <laughs> I see the recording is already
1: recording. Well, all of this ends up being fair game to be used as the hold open. Hey, good morning. Welcome. This is Grace Pratt, the editor of the Integrated Care Podcast from Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We're so excited this month to bring you a podcast all about current research and in integrated care. But before we get started on that, we're going to do some quick introductions of our team. As we go around, you know, I always like to start with a little bit of an icebreaker question so that we can move away from talking about the weather every month like we used to do. And this month in our theme of research, I thought it might be nice for an icebreaker to talk about some of those little correlations we see in our own lives. So we all know that correlation does not imply causation. We learned that in our research methods 101 class, but sometimes it sure feels like it. Uh, so, for example, for me, I know that have noticed, and I teach my supervisees this unfortunate truth as well. It seems like the more time I put in preparing for a patient encounter, the less likely that person is to show up. Uh, so, I could do my research, I could pull articles, I can get this really sophisticated intervention all queued up, and then they're gonna no-show me. And so, I'd love it as you introduce yourselves if you would share a little bit about that, Neftali.
2: Hey everybody, Uh, I'm Neftali Serrano. I'm the Chief Executive Officer here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Really glad to be here today. I'm coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And yes, I actually do believe that correlation causes causation. So (laughs) um, I I reject that hypothesis because it is pretty much 100% true that if I'm in clinic and someone in the clinic, it doesn't matter who it is, could be an MA, could be a physician or BHC, says oh it's going to be a light day today oh you know you just better duck for cover because either one of two things will happen one either it's not going to be a light day you're going to you're, you're going to get hit with all sorts of uh, stuff or yeah it'll be a light day but then right at the end of the day you will get a patient that will be testing your patients And the limits of the time that you have to go pick up your kid uh, later on in daycare. So, uh, yes. So the rule that I teach my staff and trainees and anybody here is never, ever say it's going to be a light day. In fact, I have trained myself never to actually anticipate whether a day will be busy or not busy because it's just, yeah, the stuff's going to hit the fan, as they say. So, yes, correlation does uh, prove causation.
1: Okay, well, if we have any students listening to this, disregard that part for your test, (laughs) and then you can enact it in your real life. (laughs) Uh, Bridget? I'm
3: Bridget Beachy. I'm a BHC clinical psychologist, director of behavioral health out here in Yakima, Washington, the hot spot of COVID, our claim to fame right now, apparently. I don't know if you guys have seen that. We're on the national news every two seconds for it. Uh, But... (laughs) I feel pretty safe right now, wearing wearing my mask and all of that. As far as the correlation causation thing, definitely the minute a day is a little bit on the slower side, the minute I think it, I don't even have to say it. I think it. I know at 4:59 or 5:08 there's going to be a handoff, and there just is. So it's, it's true. I think it into existence. If it's, you know, I only saw like four people on a half day, which is for me, like super slow. Like, oh man, super slow. 459, 508, handoff will come through.
2: You know,
1: I hear another one in what you have Neftalia said too. The closer it is to the end of the shift, the more complicated that warm handoff is going to be for that patient.
2: Right. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, suicidal patients don't show up at nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, they they will show up at, you know, uh, 11.59 or
3: 4.59. Mm-hmm. I've totally just gotten over the fact that I will never leap on time, ever, and uh, I'm okay with that.
2: Yeah, you have to make peace with it for sure.
1: <laughs>
3: Thank you. Christine? Hi, I'm Christine
4: Borst, a former professor, former a lot of things, um, and now I guess creative free spirit, trying to translate what I've learned this last decade into a more creative world.
2: We've got to give a shout out to Christine's book. I know we're not supposed to promo things here, but uh, I'll just break the rules and say, if you want a good children's book for explaining the pandemic, our own Dr. Borst has written a book about it. It's available on Amazon. Thank you. Way
0: to go,
4: Christine.
2: That's cool. Thank you.
4: Yeah. So mine is more related to personal life. I think the longer I spend preparing a delicious meal, the more likely at least two out of three of my kids are to ask for chicken nuggets instead, or peanut butter and jelly.
2: (laughs) Which begs the question, why don't you just go with the chicken nuggets? You know,
4: I ask myself that at least four times a week, Neftali. Like, why (laughs) didn't we just skip to cereal? I would have been happier. There would have been fewer dishes. Throw some carrots on the side, call it a day, but... Oh, I don't know. I'm going to work through that.
1: <laughs> the same exact thing is true in my house as well. And then we are joined by a special guest this morning, uh, Dr. Jody Palaha.
0: Good morning. I'm Jody Palaha. I'm at East Tennessee State University in the Department of Family Medicine, the College of Medicine. And my, I was laughing, Christine, at yours so much because mine is a child food related um, correlation as well. So I have two teenage boys and they have the same hollow leg that my husband has. Um, I think these people eat around 5,000 calories a day on a non-exercise day. Pretty sure they do. And when I make a meal that says it serves four, I'll usually add a little more in, maybe kind of shoot for a serve six kind of deal. Um, And it's frequently the case that Um, they will finish that and then get up and get a bowl of cereal, like immediately, not like an hour later, but like right away. Like they don't have enough food in their body after eating the meal that I prepared. But the correlation is if I just go hog wild and I'm like, they must be starving. I'm going to make a service. I'm going to double this sucker making 12 servings. We're just going to have it just a vat of this food here they will not be that hungry (laughs) and we'll have all this food last night we had like eight hamburgers left. (laughs) we knew we were gonna have a couple but like they only need one um so that's the correlation with my my
1: thank you all for sharing those things and i love that question because i think Sometimes for clinicians or just every day, whoever, research feels like a big scary thing. And it feels like so much to accomplish, to put together research questions or to look for connections or be, to be testing hypotheses. But we're all doing it all the time in the way that we look at the world. And so I my hope is that through our conversation today and then through just uh, the ongoing work of our podcast and our organization, that our listeners and our clinicians and everyone that is involved in integrated care will be thinking more about You know, how can I incorporate more research into my work, into my life, into my perspective of the way that I look at the world? Uh, But before we launch into our conversation, we do have a few news and notes for today. So, Naftali.
2: All right, here's our news and notes. Uh, I'm just going to catch folks up on uh, three things that are going on in the world of CFHA. There's a lot of things going on. It's been a really exciting. Rich time at CFHA. Uh, We are knee-deep in planning for our conference this October. As most conferences have gone these days during the pandemic, we are going virtual. Um, And we're actually pretty excited about it. It's allowed us to pack in a whole lot more material. Uh, It's allowed us to to, uh, be creative with how we do that. Um, so for more information, just go to integratedcareconference.com. But here are the basic outlines. This is what you need to know, all right? So the conference is going to happen from Wednesday to uh, Saturday. And we recognize that people do not want to spend all day in front of a screen. So we've made it more of a, like a half-day type experience. We've made it time zone friendly, starting at around 11 a.m. each day. Uh, you'll have basically an opportunity to attend a concurrent session, Uh, and a plenary session and a discussion group for each of those half days. Um, And then we also have spread out throughout September and October extended learning opportunities. So if you want to take a deep dive into particular topic areas like PCBH, we have a community forum for that, like collaborative care um, uh, model work. We have Jürgen and Nutzer doing a a special deep dive on that. So we're going to have... Uh, six of these deep dives across September and October uh, to complement uh, what we're doing live at the conference. And then the other fun thing about the conference is if you enjoy the CFHA podcast, we have a podcast style set of sessions as well. So if you want to take some content with you on the run or on the go, uh, there's actually going to be audio focused podcast uh, 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 sessions that you can take with you. So again, uh, for more, check out integratedcareconference.com. Now, I mentioned the collaborative care model extended learning opportunity that Jürgen Nutzer from the University of Washington is doing for us. We are also having a community meeting uh, next, uh, actually two weeks, um, where we're going to be talking as a, as a group about some of the billing and other implementation issues related to collaborative care, um so you can check that information out on our site cfha.net and just look under the calendar section there to look at the upcoming events and then last but not least last podcast uh we talked about uh black lives matter we talked about our uh responsibility as an association as individuals um and and uh, the need to kind of act out of uh, a, a place that allows us to take action and by the way i really thoroughly enjoyed Spending that time with you guys, it was uh, incredibly rich and if you haven't listened to that podcast, uh, just go back, it's uh, the last episode. Um, Brett, I just wanted to let you know that uh, CFHA is committed to a sustained conversation related to Black Lives Matter. In other words, we really see this because it's tied to our core values, uh, social justice and health equity. Our planning at this point is to have a sustained conversation uh, around this. And so just want to cue you in on some of those pieces that we're uh, working on. So first of all, our July board meeting, which we already had um, was squarely centered on uh, this issue and how we need to act. And out of that has come a a very specific call to uh, diversify our board. And so you're gonna see uh, the fruit of that in the coming months as we uh, add board members to our, our team. We've also started a book group on our learning platform. We're Reading Just Medicine by Dana Matthew. Uh, If you haven't read it or if you want to see a video, she she spoke at our conference a couple of years ago. So we're we're trying to self-educate that way. And uh, both this year's conference and the 2021 conference, which hopefully will be in Madison, Wisconsin, um, actually will have uh, a health equity and racial justice focus. Uh, We're really committed to to that. And then we'll end with this because it dovetails really nicely with what we're going to talk about today. Our Research and Education Committee, or Research and Evaluation Committee, sorry, are actually working on some really cool uh, webinars uh, for the fall focused on research uh, bias. And so uh, we're going to actually have some invited uh, guest experts uh, talking to us about How actually the the process and procedures of research uh, often reinforce some of the implicit bias that exists in healthcare and what we can do about that. So lots of stuff happening about that. We hope that you can uh, participate. Uh, If you're not a member, certainly go on cfha.net and join our community if you are a like-minded individual. All right. So those are your news and notes. Thanks, Grace.
1: Great. Thank you so much. I um, have so many things to look forward to and excited about stuff that's going to be coming out from our organization. Uh, we're going to take just a quick break and then we'll get back for our discussion
5: for the month. So, you know that CFHA is the only member association for integrated care professionals. And you know that CFHA has an awesome annual conference and is a leader for online content in integrated care. What you may not know is that CFHA is also a leading provider of consultation services for clinics and systems-building integrated care programs. From large projects to small ones, our consulting team uses the best evidence available and the most up-to-date practices in implementation strategies to ensure that your project is successful. Whether you need on-site coaching, executive-level strategy conversations, supervision sessions with your staff, or even speakers for your regional conference, CFHA's consultation services are there to help and at a price that is very competitive. Plus, by using CFHA's consulting services, you also promote the mission of our not-for-profit association. It's a win-win. For more, contact us through our website at integratedcareconsultation.com. That's integratedcareconsultation.com, the place to go for the best in technical assistance.
1: Another announcement we have is that our listeners can now call and leave voicemails for us in response to our podcast.
2: Now, you, our listeners, have an opportunity to participate on our podcast by leaving a recording at our podcast line. So if something about this podcast piqued your interest, maybe it sparked a thought or feeling, maybe you have some feedback for us or a new thing you'd like us to talk about, well, you can leave a message at 984 206 1636 extension 1636. That's 984-206-1636, extension 1636. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Okay. So I invited uh, Dr. Polaha to join us today because of an, uh, the editorial that came out recently that um, she co-wrote in Family System and Health, the journal that she is the co-editor of called A Walk on the Translational Science Bridge with Leaders in Integrated Care, Where Do We Need to Build? And we will link to that editorial in the show note for this episode. So I really wanted to just kind of expand this conversation and to hear more from you about how this editorial came to be. I love the way that you guys framed these questions um, to some leaders in our field and the information that came out from it. But would you tell us some more about the background of this?
0: Sure. Um, We really want to um, try to keep our editorials consistent with things that are top of mind for our members. And we certainly noticed that kind of the tension in choosing a model of integrated care and how to choose that model and what, what, what factors weigh in. Some of what factors weigh in is which model has the most evidence base. And what, how is that evidence base evolving for each of these models? It really seemed like something our readers would want to know about. And to speak about our readers for just a minute longer, um, we have a really interesting readership that I think is different from many other academic journals. Uh, We have a very diverse, I think, readership that is comprised of academics who do very applied and implementation science, dissemination science style research. And then we have lots of uh, what I think of as clinician scientists who dabble in research in the context of a very busy clinical life. Um, and then we have um, just uh, what I think of as clinician innovators who are uh, clinicians that are mostly clinicians, but really like to try new things. They don't necessarily collect data on them, um, but if they're taking a, making a bet about what to try, they want to know that it's something that um, somebody has shown, has some evidence uh, effectiveness. Uh, so they read. And I think that's uh, not everybody. There's there's certainly the same categories apply for some policy people and uh, administrative and management people, not just clinicians, but that's the gamut. And to really, um, to write editorials that speak to that gamut is important to us and uh, in, in that it's not just an article about uh, a methodological issue, for example, that may not be as relevant for someone who isn't gonna try to do research, but just wants to know how to make sense of research for clinical practice. Anyway, this just seemed like a topic that was uh, very much top of mind for lots of people um, in the organization.
1: And so you guys interviewed uh, a couple of key contributors to our field in a couple of the different models, the PCVH model and the collaborative care model. Um, and you asked, I thought, some really thoughtful questions. So you asked, um, what's an exciting study that's being done right now? What are the big unanswered questions limiting dissemination or implementation of the model? What is one study that you would do if you had unlimited resources, which I love the creativity behind that? And then also in the clinical world, model adopters are beginning to see the compatibility of these two models. What are the opportunities for coordination or overlapping efforts? So really bringing out that collaborative piece of the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wondered, was there anything that kind of surprised you or stood out to you from any of those answers? And also our other podcasters, as you were reading, because um, all of you are, have experience and expertise to share as well. Um, what stood out to you from some of the answers that were offered in this editorial?
0: What was gratifying to me, and not necessarily surprising, but gratifying in a, in, a, in a delightfully, maybe surprising way, was that that um, Dr. Ryder and Ratcliffe both, Um, had thoughts that were consistent with what Dr. Sundarji and I had been thinking. And it was nice to have that sort of, um, they agreed, right? So I felt sort of validated like, oh yeah, we we get this. We uh, really based those questions on this fundamental idea of a translational bridge, which if you go back to our very first editorial, was central. And the bridge is two things. It's the actual bridge itself And it's the science that is the traffic traveling on the bridge. The bridge itself is methods of doing research. Some of them are actual, um, what you would think of of as a scientific method, like a randomized controlled trial, for example. Some of it is grant funding. Uh, Some of it is scientific journals that disseminate the information. That's the architecture that supports actually doing research. And the PCBH model and the collaborative care model share that bridge. Whatever scientific discoveries we make about how to do research on models, which we don't have a very good architecture there. If you look at that bridge in the very first editorial, it's incomplete as it reaches the shore of where things happen, where actual practitioners are located. We don't have a lot of good methods in place for how you study the impact of a model its a very complicated study. So as that science, the science of science, is developed, both the collaborative care model and PCBH stand to benefit from that and to the extent that they're in communication about how, do, how are you going to study this, um, how am I studying this, et cetera, there's some shared knowledge and I think things can move a bit quicker. Um, and we all had the sense that historically they've been quite separate, and in fact, it's some t- and sometimes competing, but they're, they share the bridge, they have to move their information on the bridge the same way that we do. One of the striking things about the two models is the lack of a strong way to measure model fidelity. How do you know that you're doing the PCBH model exactly what tells you? That you're doing it and is it the same thing tells me that I'm doing it over here do we all agree um, both the collaborative care model and pcbh have really strong um, sort of program or, or system descriptions but they're not recipes in the same way that um, you need when you, when you cook and I my metaphor is they're sort of like your grandma's recipe it's a pinch of this and a dash of that um, as opposed to you need a quarter cup and both fields are struggling with that how do you develop a fidelity model for a model of care not an intervention right and we have fidelity models for the intervention that is CBT for anxiety and there's a there's a manual and you do this step one step two and how much of these ingredients and how much of those in exact measurements we don't have that for these two models and unpacking that or solving that problem is a shared in, in many ways, a shared problem. Um, and it it is uh, part of the architecture of the bridge. we We felt that way. And then, as we discussed with them, we we saw that they agreed and and were grappling with those like that the lack of science and kind of trying to develop the science in the same way.
4: You know, a few years ago, I had a guest lecturer who did a lot of collaborative care research. And so he was lecturing in my class about that. And he said, and we're doing this really exciting thing where we're actually, in addition to like the psychiatrist, we have a therapist on the ground in the clinic doing brief interventions. And my students were like, awesome. But that sounds a lot like PCBH, right? So when when there isn't a connection between people who are doing really great research in these different models, it is hard to suss out between the two, especially when there is sometimes overlap depending on the system
0: in the real world. Right. And, and you know, being able to discriminate data that come out of that program where there is a therapist on the ground versus not, I mean, those are two different recipes for the collaborative care model. And, you know, how do you know what what did what and trying to, you know, trying to set some sort of standards. It's really important. I think another thing that um, we sort of knew going into the conversation that we were not surprised by, but felt validated that we agreed were we all agreed was true, um, is that the collaborative care model started pretty firmly in the center of the bridge. So the center of the bridge is is kind of applied research and um, effectiveness and efe- and efficacy studies, and you know they really have many good, well-designed studies showing the impact of their model but they haven't um, translated it to the ground quite as much Um, and so getting it to be actually taken up in the real world is their challenge. On the other hand, the PCBH model is much more firmly grounded in the real world on the very end of the bridge where the road is, you know, kind of starting to turn into streets and lanes. And there's lots of uptake. Um, there's lots of folks utilizing the model. It's happening in the real world, but it hasn't made it back onto the bridge as much as we'd like to see it for those kinds of rigorous tests. And so, um, there are different questions now for these two groups, how to get their work going in opposite directions, right? Uh, so that was another thing that they both both of them agreed and, and talked about a bit in our discussions. and it was really interesting to hear their perspective on that as well.
2: Yeah, and you know picking picking up on that, um, I think that was one of the things that struck me as i as I read, which, by the way, I, I love that metaphor of walking across the bridge and actually kind of I felt like the article did a good job of, of having this conversational tone of, of, you know, just having this conversation. And I, I think the thing that struck me was that uh, both the experts, Dr. Rathliff and Dr. Ryder, were struggling with the idea of how to study the models in context in particular. You know, so, so what are the characteristics of the clinic? What are the characteristics of the practitioners? Uh, what are the characteristics of some of the procedures that you use? Um, right. What are some organizational factors? And that that to me is fascinating because I think that is another equalizer, that whatever we do happens in a context. And those contextual factors are often actually more important than what we might think of as the recipe components of the models themselves, right? Uh, leadership, buy-in architecture of a clinic, um, what kind of staffing you have, what kind of buy-in the staffing have into the model of care, et cetera. Um, And the the fact that both were kind of struggling with that, um, you know, it, it it was interesting and also, I think, gratifying to hear them talk about that because I think that as someone who does a lot of consultation for clinics who are implementing either of these models, that's where the rubber hits the road for the work that I do with clinics, where I'm struggling with not just the components of the models, but actually the context in which they're being, they're trying to sort of uh, be seated, so to speak. So uh, I, I, I think you did a good job of getting them to kind of talk about that. I wonder if that's something that they noticed. Uh, I don't know how much interaction you had with them, but did they notice some of the kind of commonalities that... that you and Nadia kind of saw? They
0: did, and I think that's speaking to my point earlier about kind of the validating side of this. We we actually came up with those questions and um, in a retreat we had. It was my last travel experience, the last week in January, going to Canada and spending several days there with Dr. Sinderjee and planning for the journal and thinking about this particular editorial and we had some time set aside where we could just sit and think and I practically wrote an editorial um, in terms of like just paragraphs of ideas about what was going on with these two models. And we had to back away off of that, of course, and just come up with a couple of questions all that thinking of course leads to these are the questions I think we really need to ask them. And it was interesting to see that their answers coalesced around kind of the essays I had written and preparing the questions. And yeah, I think they both really did uh, kind of see that agreement around the challenges um, in measuring the model um, as, as I had and thinking about it as well. It is it is really, I mean, it's such a tough um, order to come up with a fidelity recipe for a model because you have, you know, this model for delivering care, but you also have like what care actually gets delivered, Right actually. In PCBH, for example, you know, there's the model and then there's um, like what the therapist actually does in the room. The model has more to do with getting the therapist in the room um, and making sure that there's really good connections across their, their care. And then there's the actual intervention, right? And then there's this broader context of all of the providers that are making those connections, what the system looks like outside of the room that supports or doesn't support the model and this is true for for both and all integrated care models and uh yeah we definitely talked about that quite a bit how do you it's get a, at that
1: it's a fine balance right between getting it so specific and manualized that it's consistent enough that you can study it and have some fidelity but also the uh, creative, I mean, these models developed from people that were being creative about how can we change primary care. And so being able to allow for the creativity and the more elements of the system that you add, and we know we have to be working within the system, the less control that you have, which is bad for research, but good for, you know, actual implementation. So it seems like it's a really hard edge to lock for researchers.
2: Yeah, and I wonder, uh, along those lines, just to connect to some other editorials that have appeared in Family Systems and Health, CFHA's board president, Andy Valeris, is big into a field called complexity science, which I just have dabbled into, but I love. As a systems thinker, I love because it essentially looks at evaluation from a a sense of an ecosystem and how an ecosystem works versus a... um, more traditional, sort of, let's cut apart the components of the ecosystem, look at each of the components individually. So, Jody, I wonder. One of the questions that came to my mind was, what if the tools we have right now aren't sufficient to to tell us what uh, what a successful model in a you know X Y Z clinic will be. Do we need to develop some other tools, um, maybe even reaching into a, 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 an adjacent field like complexity science to rethink how we study things?
0: I think that's a great point. Complexity science and dissemination and implementation science. I mean, when you get into the field of, of DNI science, you, you really start talking about complexity because um, it's messy when you get off the bridge. I mean, the bridge is two lanes, right? Like one lane going in each direction, or maybe it's two in each direction. I don't know what it looks like in your head, but um, it's pretty simple. It's one road, crosses a river. Um, but once you get onto the, onto the land, you've got all kinds of, of uh, variables. And so D&I is all, and that's why uh, so many of the um, bodies of research that are based on these large N, randomized controlled trials in the middle of the bridge never make it to implementation because there's so many factors that that were not considered during those trials that then you know are kind of deal breakers in the real world and that's kind of those fields of science and I'm, I'm not unfortunately I have not heard or learned much about how complexity science and dI science have have interplayed, but they they have a lot in common in that regard. They're, they really have that same kind of goal of how do we make this happen in this really messy situation where there's a lot of variability across different practices, for example.
1: And the, towards the end of the editorial, you asked um, Dr. Ryder and Dr. Radsliff about how they might be able to you know, how might the models collaborate or, you know, work together in these efforts. And I loved what Dr. Ryder said about, he said, I believe the yardstick for integration should be, are we making primary care better? And it gets back to some of what we've been talking about this whole time, that it's kind of that systemic idea of process versus content. The content is important and the, you know, the specific model that we implement is important, but the process of how we're improving primary care, how we're expanding our efforts and understanding more from a systemic level and being, um, you know, bridging these different ways of looking at the science are so important.
0: Yeah, and it points to kind of how I think science needs to evolve. And, it, and I think, Natalia, you're totally right. Like, we, we don't have great methods yet for evaluating these complicated um, systems of care. You know, we're, we're using some old tools to get at least a little glimpse of some answers here and there that apply in some cases, at least give us a, a little bit of a path forward. But we're also, and this is this was kind of the point of this article, to some extent, you know, kind of co-building that bridge that meets the land, the actual science that will help us uncover, you know, really uh, best model um, outcomes and studies.
2: So, yeah, and I think to that end, I think a key piece is really always having a connection between the research and its end. Like, what mm-hmm. are we trying to accomplish, right? And again, the other, one of the other piece, I love what Dr. Ratzloff said in her description of what she would like to happen going forward. And I was so gratified to hear that she was saying, you know, we'd really like to show outcomes and things like how many people avoid being incarcerated? Uh, How many people avoid homelessness? You know, those endpoints are really important to stay connected to as we're thinking through how we evaluate our our models of care and what their impacts are beyond the, I think, what's been frustrating, I think, in the first, um, this first sort of era of research where we're still sort of, I think, uh, been trying to copy the intervention evaluation model where we're just looking at, you know, can we reduce uh, somebody's score, anxiety score on an instrument, or um, can we achieve remission on this disease, which is sort of theoretically helpful, but in the real world, um, what does that do? Like, what does that do for the physician who's practicing in their practice? Does it make their lives better? Um, What does it do for the community even? You know, are are we helping underserved populations uh, achieve better economic outcomes? You know, are they able to go to work more often? Are they able to care for their families? And of course, that larger question that Dr. Ryder brought up, which is germane to PCBH, which is, are are we adding some value to primary care? Are we making primary care something different than what it would be if we weren't there? Uh, Or are we just adding on some other service, you know, that's, that's not really relevant to the the uh to the work of primary care in general and i think maintaining that connection helps us i i hope to think broadly about how we do evaluation and uh, i think maybe we'll push some of the design efforts of evaluation studies
0: i think what you're pointing out is that we're starting to evolve a better set of outcomes that are more meaningful in real world practice and and in pointing researchers to those outcomes. But in conjunction with that, we need to be able to point folks to um, sort of accessible ways of measuring those. And so a fidelity criteria that you can get by just doing a assay of your EHR um, or health outcomes that you're already tracking in the context of clinical care. I think more of those kinds of clinician accessible outcomes will allow us it'll allow academics to come into clinical real world clinical settings and pull data and we you know not have to design crazy surveys with college students, you know whatever they can go in and get this data and allow clinician scientists to um to create meaningful and helpful data as well so yeah
3: And the only thing I want to just add real quick is that what I see the most with the consulting as well as the training is that the folks, the mental health folks coming in don't have really any understanding at all of what primary care is trying to accomplish. And that's kind of where things can go awry. Uh, Do you spend 25 minutes with somebody or 40 minutes with somebody? If you understand primary care over and over, you'll understand how it could be in some ways standardized, but in some ways flexible. So that would be my advice to anybody who's listening, who's new, is understand what your primary care system is trying to do, and some of these nuances will become more clear for what to do as an actual clinician.
2: Mm-hmm. And actually, that's a great complexity science approach, uh, which is just understand what the system's trying to do. Um, and, and I think that's where, you know, as, as someone who works with clinics on implementation, that's something I remind folks over and over again. A system is designed to do what it was designed to do. So understand that design and your efforts to integrate what you're trying to do, whether it is PCBH or collaborative care, or whether you're just trying to do some sort of expert intervention or MAT intervention. If, if you are essentially running counter to the overall design of that clinic, and this is where the evaluation piece gets funky because not every primary care clinic is actually trying to do the same thing. That's the thing. Every system is actually—it's its own system, and it, but if you're trying to move in some sort of direction that pulls away from what primary care is trying to do, well, yeah, your implementation efforts are not going to work very well, no matter how faithful you are to a particular yes. model of care. So having that understanding at the very beginning of what your system is trying to do really really helps. So I'll give you a quick example of this. Just so a lot of times folks are starting out uh, trying to integrate a. Uh, uh, behavioral health program, and they're trying to get buy-in, and I tell them, so what are, what are your system's goals? Like, are you trying to uh, get uh, hypertension management uh, improved, uh, whether through medication adherence um, or through some other objective clinical measures? Are you just trying to improve uh, your team functioning in any way, getting medical assistants to screen more often uh, for particular conditions? Start there, start in a place where your clinic is already doing some things and say, how can I be helpful in the model of care that I'm adopting? How can I be helpful towards that effort? And the more you align those efforts, the more you're able to graft in what you're trying to do. And then the shaping of the system typically comes after the fact. It comes after that uh, grafting has happened. In a sense, you're splicing your DNA into the DNA of the system. And sorry for the virus analogy, because this is what a virus does. <laughs> you kind of take over the, the DNA and you replicate yourselves within the system in a way that toler that's tolerable, right? So I, I would just love, you know, as an implementer, I would love for researchers to be able to capture that. So this is a challenge to all the researchers out there to say, Hey, how do you how do you capture that level of complexity to get at what Bridget is saying that It really matters what a system is trying to accomplish and how a model can be grafted into that system uh, effectively uh, is, is something we ought to be able to explain on some level other than just sort of anecdotally like I try to explain it.
1: We know this on a patient care level as well. You know, if you go to a patient and they have a health goal, or maybe they don't, but you have a goal for them and you tell them, and it's far away from what they've ever done before, or what they've ever thought about, and you try to impose your goal on them, it's never going to work. And I think sometimes this transition or this translation of ourselves as clinicians who are doing science, um, because I think a lot of our listeners, I, I appreciated how you described the different readers of, um, family systems and health. And I think we have a similar diversity among our listeners, um, both, you know, academic researchers and also clinician scientists and also the clinician innovators that you described. Um, But we would never, as clinicians, go in and try to impose that on a patient. And so we need to think in that way and translate and use those skills as we think about approaching and trying to influence our systems. Um, We are just about out of time, and we still have our special segment and our closing thought, but I wanted to just give an opportunity, um, if anyone else has anything they'd like to say as we close this part of our conversation.
2: Well, I'll just uh, note that um, I'm not anti-research that looks at some components, uh, even though you might hear that here, components of models. I think those can be helpful. They're just not sufficient. So I'll put in the show notes. Uh, There's another FSH article by uh, Dr. Patty Robinson and colleagues that that is an example of that kind of research, right? It looks at PCBH and looks at uh, uh, brief interventions and and the uptake of brief interventions um, over time. So do patients uh, implement coping strategies uh, and retain those efforts and do they continue taking medication? et cetera. So the study shows that, that, in fact, when compared to usual care, um, they were able to show that uh, patients in the integrated care arm sustained the use of those coping skills that they had learned in their sessions with BHCs uh, longer than those who in, in usual care. Um, and there was also a difference related to medication. So that's an example of, of sort of that more sort of narrowly focused type that looks uh, research that looks at a particular outcome uh, and a component uh, uh, of a model. Uh, but beyond that, I think what we're trying to communicate to people is that uh, behind that research needs to be a common understanding of what PCBH is, for example, and an understanding of what it means to implement a model in a clinic, right? So all that's stuff that has been really silent in the research. And for that reason, I'm really thankful, Jody, that you wrote this down uh, because honestly, like when I was reading the article, I was like, I don't know of any other plays in the literature that has written this set of contrasts down. And now I can actually refer to that and say, hey guys, this is where we need to, we need to be starting thinking about this kind of stuff. So thank you to you and to Dr. Sunderjee for just writing this stuff down.
0: Thank you, and I, it, we, we love being the co-editors of FSH and its connection to CFHA, and I just want to remind anyone that's listening that if you're a CFHA member, you get to read the journal for free. Just, there's a clickable link right there in the um, CFHA website that will take you right to the journal and all of its articles, and um, <clears throat> we've been taking these um, sort of complex implementation science methods breaking them down in all of our editorials. Next uh, issue, I'll give you a little preview. In in September, Dr. Jesse Hines is um, kind of an economist slash implementation scientist person in North Carolina. He's guest edited a really fantastic piece with his colleagues on um, the cross-section of implementation science and studying um, cost of integrated care. And it's as complex as all the things we've discussed today, it's just cost. Um, But in a very similar way to this discussion, kind of raises all of the levels of cost that come up in implementing integrated care and how to account for those. And some of the unknown things that that implementation science hasn't quite figured out yet. Um, But it, it again will apply to and everybody from academics who want to study cost to um, clinician innovators who are curious about um, how how to um, evaluate it just for their own clinic. So uh, anyway, thank you all for having me. It's been really fun.
1: Thank you for joining us. And I can't just miss this opportunity to say thank you for your editing of the journal. And I think it's totally my personal opinion, but I know one that's very shared. I think at FSH, you do such a great job of having rigorous scientific research, but also having it be accessible and covering such a broad um, range of topics that are really meaningful to the field. So thank you so much for that work that you do. Thank you. So we're going to go now to our special segment. We have an interview with Dr. Alexander Blunt, who wrote an article that'll be relevant to a lot of us as we continue to forage on through these coronavirus times on high-touch telemedicine. Good morning, Dr. Blunt. Thank you for joining us. I was wondering if you might start by introducing yourself for listeners who may not be as familiar with your past work.
6: I am Alexander Blunt. Almost everybody who knows me calls me Sandy. Uh, I am a psychologist. I've been in the field since 1975, and so I am a grizzled veteran. I wrote the first book and the first article on integrated primary care in the last century and um, worked in family medicine as the director of behavioral science at UMass for many years. I was at UMass for uh, medical school for 20 years, and then taught in a graduate school teaching health psychology and behavioral health integration. Now I'm a consultant in my own company.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, And we wanted to spend a few minutes on the podcast today talking about the article that you wrote that was published on the CFHA website about high-touch telemedicine. Uh, I know that a lot of your work has been around ideas of patient-centered care and integration. And so can you tell me a little bit more about kind of what led you to these thoughts in this time?
6: I was very interested in the fact that healthcare transitioned to telemedicine in two months, that I had never, ever seen a thoroughgoing transition like that. I mean, usually it takes 17 years for an evidence-based action or medicine in um, medical settings to become regularly implemented generally. And here was this fairly new technology, and there were some early adopters, and there were people out there excited about it, but everybody went there overnight. And so then we got all these new kinds of surprises that surprised many of us. So one was many, many patients that we would have thought couldn't participate, now could, that 95% of the Patients from households with under $30,000 income have a smartphone. Doesn't mean they always have Wi-Fi. Doesn't mean they always have good connections. And they often don't have a place that they can talk and be private. A lot of times people are out in their cars talking to their doctor or their behavioral health person. The other thing that was surprising was behavioral health at UMass and the many practices there When people had an appointment set with behavioral health, the no-show rate was about 30%. When we went to telehealth, the no-show rate was almost zero. They had to restructure the workflows for the behavioral health folks because the 30% was built in as an expectation for them to do things. So that was surprising. The other thing was how much the patients who did use it liked it. They didn't have to drive across town, didn't have to wait, uh, didn't have to check in, didn't have to be in the doctor's space. And that fit with work that I had been done for a book that I published uh, last fall, which was called Patient-Centered Primary Care, Getting from Good to Great. And what that book essentially shows because I'm summarized a great deal of evidence, is that there is a group of people, and we sometimes call them complex patients, and we sometimes call them disadvantaged patients, and we sometimes call them trauma survivors. But in fact, those three different approaches are mostly talking about the same people, and that those people did better, much better, with trauma-informed care. And that trauma-informed care, oddly enough, is the only kind of care that actually embodies the recommendations for all medical care that were given by the Institute of Medicine in the Crossing the Quality Chasm report in 2001. So I went back and sort of reviewed the history of the difference between the medical home, which we've done fairly well at, and patient-centered care, which we really haven't done well at. And we, providers, tend to call anything that we do for the sake of the patient, patient patient-centered care. But patient-centered care means that the patient is fully on the team that determines their care, and that their preferences and that their life situation is factored, and that they have access to all of their medical information Um, which is just now starting to happen. There's a process called Open Notes that was started in Boston uh, at the big health centers there. And now over 45 million people have access to their doctor's notes. Well, I've been reading my notes as a clinician to people at the beginning of their visit my whole career, at least 20 years, so that when we start a visit, I read them the note from the last visit which I have found to be an incredibly powerful clinical uh, intervention because I can be complimentary or I can emphasize things in that note that helps engage the patient, uh, makes them feel much more empowered in the interaction. But I had to learn to use language a little differently. I had to learn some a lot of the training that I learned in fa- the, back in the old days in family therapy, reframing things just fit right in. And so what we find is that for people, I call them multiply disadvantaged patients. For those folks who are the most expensive, who are the ones who come back often and don't get the services they need, um, my friend CJP calls them the overserviced. And underserved patients and who are coping with uh, the sequelae of trauma, being transparent is the beginning of making the engagement that they need, Um, but you have to be able to speak your professional language in a way that is not stigmatizing, in a way that's not blaming to people, and professional language, even when the professional thinks that, no, this isn't stigmatizing. She's obese and blah, blah, blah. Don't realize that obese is a technical term, for instance, in medicine, but in everywhere else, it's just an insult. And that, you know, how do I use to learn, use language regularly in engaging patients in a way that involves, them? that's what the book is about. And then when I saw that the way that people were responding to um, telehealth. One of the things that was most telling, I guess, was that there's an intrinsic parity in it. That the doctor's head is the same size as my head. That the doctor can get out of this with a click, I can get out of this with a click. That we are both, in a sense, voluntary, in a way that when I'm at the doctor's office, many people feel captive and feel so tense they can't even think of their questions. So that parody fit nicely with the recommendations in the book about patient-centered care. And so I added a little sort of very common neurological research which has shown that when people are experiencing themselves as having something they did right, recognized, that they are being supported in a way that supports their independence and managing of themselves. They have the same endocrinological, neurological cascade of reactions that they get when the doctor puts their hand on their shoulder as a way of, um, you know, engaging them, being empathetic. And so the fact that physically you can touch somebody with your words, if you use the right words, seemed to me to be worth highlighting. And to say that because what I had seen in the telemedicine world was that it was all about the technology. Everybody's talking about the technology. And that, you know, the technology will be so old news in another six or eight months and then what we usually do in interacting with people needs to be evolved. Um, and, you know, for instance, when you're with in the room with a patient, you are taking in all kinds of information about them that you are not monitoring consciously. That's how people are. And so you will have, um, you know, instincts or, uh, you know, just something that tells you that something's going on that is a result of the way the patient is smelling, their skin color, the body language, whatever it is that you won't have. That All of that goes away in telehealth. There's a basic thing in telehealth with some platforms that if you do the language that you would normally do to support the patient's talking, you say, "Uh uh-huh, uh huh. tell me more. Each time the platform changes who's talking. And so what is supportive of patient narrative face-to-face is in fact experienced by patients as interrupting in telehealth. And so all of these kinds of things said to me, we can do something here and it can be very much supported of patient-centered care But we have to know what we're doing and we have to be aware of those kinds of things. And I'm in contract discussions with some folks to create a set of telehealth videos of it done right, both team approach to telehealth and um, interviews that uh, embody the kinds of things I'm talking about.
1: I think that would be wonderful. I mean, it's just like you said, we've been thrust into this experiment that all of us had to do this really rapid implementation and adoption of a technology that maybe some people were using, but a lot were not. And I I really liked how you talked about it does have some limitations. There are some things that are lost and some things that we have relied on as clinicians in the past, but there's so much opportunity there as well. And I wonder, just as we're kind of wrapping up our conversation, looking forward, What things do you hope continue or change or endure out of what has been a, we've just been responding to this situation, but as we move forward and are able to be really intentional about what we carry forward, what would be your encouragement to clinicians or administrators or any of our
6: listeners? Well, there's a chapter in my book that's called Getting from Delivering Care to Patients to Making Partnerships for Care with Patients. I hope it's not that many words, but it's something like that. My, my hope would be, b- because everything's gonna be up for grabs for a while now because things are so chaotic and because funding is changing and because we, if we get a new administration, we may get a whole lot of one thing and if we get the same administration, we'll get a whole lot of the other thing, all of this, that people will not choose To try and go back to where we were that they will look at the mission that they were working on before and say how can we do that mission better with the knowledge that we hadn't been doing great on patient-centered care and that with open notes and with um, using you know having conversations about patients in front of the patient on the team with Uh, using language in a way that's empowering and activating uh, with patient-centered care plans, we could say, well, you know, if we're going to change anyway, let's do this, rather than I only want to do the littlest possible change. I went to graduate school uh, where the dean used to say that a little change hurts a lot, but a lot of change only hurts a little bit more. That's been something I found useful.
1: That is a a great encouragement. So words I'm going to take with me for sure. Um, if we had anyone who's listening, who would like to continue this conversation or to, to reach you, what would be the best way for them to contact you?
6: I am at a blunt spelled B L O U N T E D D at gmail.com.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this conversation. We'll definitely direct people to read this piece. And we hope to hear from our listeners on our listserv uh, some more conversation around that. I would love that. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Blunt, for joining us and sharing that with us. Um, We will end the way we always do with our closing thought.
7: The following quotes for our meditation are from civil rights icon, Representative John Lewis who passed away last week, with our quest to become a more equitable organization, to align with social and racial justice, and as collaborative individuals who crosswalk to create powerful models to improve health care delivery and health equity. The following words from John Lewis strengthens and inspires me, and hope it will do the same for you. Take a long, hard look down the road you will have to travel once you have made a commitment to work for change. Know that this transformation will not happen right away. Change often takes time. It rarely happens all at once. In the movement, we didn't know how history would play itself out. When we were getting arrested and waiting in jail or standing in unmovable lines on the courthouse steps, We did not know what would happen, but we knew it had to happen. You are a light. You are the light. Never let anyone, any person or any force dampen, dim or diminish your light. Release the need to hate, to harbor division and the enticement of revenge. Release all bitterness. Hold only love, Only peace in your heart, knowing that the battle of good to overcome evil is already won. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, team, for being here. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next month.